How's everybody doing? Is everyone okay? Hey, Luke. Hi, Andrea. Hello, Luke and Andrea's friend. Hey, sister. What's your name, sister? Tina. It's good to meet you. I'm Adam. Oh, darn it. Now I did it. Technology. Well, I, what I did, I needed to join the, the Wi-Fi network, and I, and I told I didn't, I didn't want to do it, so now it's giving me fits. Is your phone in your pocket? No, it's all good. Ah, oh, shnikes. Yeah, would you do that? And Hey, would you turn your keynote remote on, please? Thanks, Ray. Yeah, that's why they paid me the big bucks here at the Vineyard, <clears throat> so I can screw up the technology. Is everybody happy this morning? Worship was rocking, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, that if, if, you come, if, you, if you only came for worship every single week, but you came every single week and you stayed for you know, the 40 minutes of worship, at the end of the year, you would be significantly more mentally healthy than you were at the beginning of the year. This is what I found. I found that worship just changes people. So it's like, it, we weren't just like singing to the Lord, but there was, we actually were, we were in a therapy session. You guys realize that? We had 40 minutes of therapy. <laughs> Is it going to work, Ray Ray? Awesome, thank you. Technology. It's the bane of my existence. Awesome. I don't have a joke. Ray Ray doesn't have a joke? How's that? That's not even possible. Terrific. He doesn't have keynote remote. Hey, Seth, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't we just go ahead and start keynote, and you can be, my, you can be my, my play caller here. Is that okay? All right. Let's do this. This is what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm really sorry for the people who are on this section. Last week, our little lamp burnt out, and it's, it's coming. And we'll have it fixed next week. Uh, yeah, what I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment. Is that all right? Yeah, that comes straight out of uh, that comes out straight out of James chapter two. It's right there, the very middle to end of verse thirteen. So if you wanted to turn there and underline it, we're just going to kind of bounce. I'm going to be honest this morning. We're going to bounce around a little bit, so you're going to have to hang with me. Um, we're going to we're going to kind of develop this over the next couple of weeks, but we're going to we're going to really start to to mine out some of these realities that exist around the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment. And one of the first things we need to deal with is uh, we need to deal with perception. So, Seth, if you want to put up the, the first slide here. Second slide. Yeah, everybody like my little, everybody like my little, my little, my little balloons? Yeah, this is great, isn't it? Yeah, I was talking to, to Magnolia this morning about, 
about what her favorite color balloon was, and she says, it was, it's definitely the red balloon, because the red balloon's just brighter, you know? There's something about the red balloon. You can go ahead and go to the next slide, Seth. And, and, and the reason that we need to talk about perception to begin with is because perception determines what we find. Have you ever heard this before? What you're looking for determines what you find? What do you all see up there right now? Yeah, see, most people find, see two faces, but what else is up there? A vase. And what determines what you see? What you're looking for. Your perception determines what you find. And um, here's the deal with perception. Perception is kind of like a... It's kind of like a social filter. It's kind of like a psychological filter. It, it filters out certain things. And so by the end, res- the net result is we're not just finding just anything. We're not stumbling upon things. But literally our worldviews, our perceptions are setting us up to see or not see certain things. Agreed? Here's a couple ways that perception works in our life. Um, any of you guys ever ever been like bit with the get rich quick thing? <laughs> See, get rich quick. Every get rich quick scheme, they're all they're almost all from the devil. But <clears throat> that's another story altogether. But almost every get rich quick scheme is hinged upon a clever use of of perception, and and it's hinged upon it's hinged, it's hinged like this. It gets us to look at the outcomes and look at the outcomes, and look at the outcomes, but what do we never look at? The process. And then we get in the middle, we get halfway through the process, and we become incredibly frustrated, and then after we become frustrated, we get burnt out, and after we become burnt out, we give up, right? And we go, well, I thought getting rich was supposed to be quick. No one told me about the process. See, our perceptions end up determining what we find a lot of times. And it's not just with, um, with, with get-rich-quick schemes, but it's also... Um, Games at the Midway. Everybody ever, anyone in here ever played a game at the Midway? You know the one that, the one that's most frustrating to me is the game on the Midway. You know the basketball shoot thing? Because if you grow up in Kentucky, and especially if you're a guy in Kentucky, and I'm not saying that girls in Kentucky don't like or play basketball. I know they do. I'm just saying that if you're male and you, and you are from Kentucky, there is a certain, basketball hurts, holds a certain place for you. And so you grow up, if you're like me, you grew up shooting basketball. I mean, we shot basketball in the barn. And that's what we did, you know. Like, it didn't matter how cold it was. It could be 10 degrees outside. We would shoot basketball with our frozen stumps of hands. I, I can remember actually being so devoted to shooting basketball, I learned how to shoot basketball with jersey gloves on. All right? That's, that's called devotion. But then you go to the midway, and then there's this, there's this basketball thing you think well gosh and this is going to be great i'm going to win the giant stuffed bear thing right and and you you grab the ball and and you begin to shoot and you're not even close and in fact when you get close you hit the rim and where does the ball go like 97 feet high what's the problem the problem is that the decks have been stacked against you took me a while to figure this out It, it after a while it occurred to me wow i'm not shooting on a 10 foot goal i'm shooting on an 11 foot goal and the, and, the, and, the, and the basketball hoop, it's not round. It's, it's oblong. But you can't tell from the bottom where you're standing. And not only that, but the basketball you're playing with, it's a little bit bigger than the basketball you normally shoot with. And not only that, but they've overinflated it. So if it touches the iron at all, it goes shooting like 97 feet across the, across the parking lot. I mean, here's the deal. Like LeBron James couldn't shoot basketball on the midway. You know why? Because the perception is all screwed up. 
So here's the point. The point this morning is that perception alters what we end up finding. You guys remember that little balloon slide I showed a minute ago? Presumably you did, right? I don't know. Maybe these, these people didn't. But at least these people... How many, how many blue balloons were on the slide? Two. Very good. Very good. Some of you guys have really quick, have really good minds. How many of you all troubled with remembering that there was two blue balloons? See a lot of hands. You know why you were troubled with remembering there were two blue balloons? Because we talked about the red one. There's something about talking about the red one that doesn't allow us to see what else is on the page. I, I just mentioned that Magnolia likes the red one and everyone begins to look there. Perception alters what we see. Now I guess we need to get down to brass tacks. The reason I wanted to talk about perception, and the reason that it's so important for us, at least here here this morning at church, is because our perceptions of who God are, of who God is, are just as important. Um, When the perception that you have of God, whoever He is, the perception that you carry with you, the, the worldview that you carry with you every single day about who God is determines who God can be for you. And here's the thing about perceptions. They grow up and they grow on us so slowly that we don't even realize that our perceptions about who the Lord is and our worldviews about the kingdom of heaven are being shaped every single day. You realize that your perception of who God is and your worldview of the kingdom of heaven is largely determined at home. And so all of us have a, have a perception and a worldview of who God is, and it's largely based upon the father that we did have or the father that we didn't have. Not only that, but the other believers that we come into contact with, the teaching that we grew up with, the Sunday school lessons that we had when we were five, six, and seven years old, they all begin to reinforce certain aspects of who God is, and in doing so, oftentimes keep us from seeing something that's vitally important about who God is and that's just as true. This is a really good example. I didn't put a slide up for it, but you can look on this later. In Luke chapter 4, this is when Jesus, he's just been baptized uh, by John the Baptist. The Spirit comes upon him and remains, comes out of the water. Jesus immediately goes into the desert, and while he's in the desert, he's tempted by the devil, and he's got wild animals around him, and the devil keeps coming to him. And after he goes through this temptation of the devil for 40 days, he eats nothing, he drinks nothing. He goes to his hometown, and he declares to his hometown, his people who knew him best, he declares to his hometown a prophecy out of Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to free captives, to open blind eyes. And he just begins to quote Isaiah 61 to them. And everyone, while they're listening to it, they're thinking, Wow, this is something else. Who... What? This is unbelievable. And everyone begins to be excited, but about three-quarters of the way through the excitement, about three-quarters of the way through his message, someone says, Ah, dude, isn't this, isn't this Jesus like the son of the carpenter? Like, like, dude, aren't we like, don't we eat his table? Didn't he make my table? You think, well, what's the point? The point is, the Jesus that you knew oftentimes keeps you from knowing the Jesus that you need to know tomorrow. And it, and it has to do with perception. If he's just a carpenter, then he can't be a savior. If he's, if, he's just, if he's just the guy who's whittling wood and making tables, then I have a difficult time realizing that he's actually the king of the universe and that he's the solution for my present need. Perception. The Jesus that you grew up with, 
Even the good Jesus, even the good and right Jesus that you grew up with and that you learned about in Sunday school can actually keep you from meeting the Jesus that you need today, tomorrow, and the day after that. I know that sounds incredibly offensive, but that's just a religious spirit, and it'll leave. So here I want to talk about some of the common perceptions of who God is. We can, we can bounce a couple slides here. There we go. Next one. Talk about a couple common perceptions of who the Lord is. And um, you might find that you hold some of these still in your head. It's really important that we work through these. For a lot of us, we don't even realize it until maybe I begin to articulate it for us, but God's just the old, tired guy. And here's what I mean by the old, tired guy. Yeah, he's, he's not just old, but he's like really old, right? So he's, he's timeless. So, you know, that, that precludes a certain age factor. But God's this timeless, incredibly old guy. He sits on a bench. He, he's not harmful. He doesn't hurt anyone. He's definitely not dangerous. And if you were to, if you were to think about God in, in, in the way that you view him and hold him in your heart, and you go, yeah, you know, you know, if I were to ask you, is God kind? You go, yeah, he's kind. But really, behind the kindness is, is he's really old and he's really tired. And what that really means is he's really not able to help you, even though he's kind. You know, he's, he's the old, tired guy. He's kind, but he's just... He's just really unable to do anything other than, like, take a nap and feed the pigeons, right? Right along with the perception of of God being the old, tired guy is this little thought, and, and this is where it gets most of us. It's this little thought that God is actually in retirement. Well, what does that mean? This is what it means. You, you have a perception that God is the old, tired guy who is in retirement if you believe that God's best days are behind him. If you believe that the best things that God ever did were with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you have an old, tired guy on a bench who's retired. I want to tell you this morning, God is neither old nor tired, and his best days aren't behind him. Amen? Here's another perception of the Lord. Can you guys read the caption at the bottom? I'll, I'll read it for you. I'll set it for these people. I'm sorry. Uh, we've got an angel, and he's kind of like the um, he's kind of like the receptionist in heaven. And the caption says, "Would you like to leave a message? He's on the throne." Hey, it works. You know. Um, but another perception that has really taken root in the, in the church isn't just that God is the old, tired, retired guy, but it's that God is the too busy guy. It's not that he doesn't care. He actually does care. It's just that he's too busy to care about you or to care about me. In fact, what this, what this mindset and this, this perception of the Lord wants to sow in our heart is that we are less important to him than we really are. It goes like this. It's like we know that, that God is powerful. We know that he is present. 
We know that he is active. We know that he is, his, he, that he is able. But he's, just, he's actually just too busy. Like, you know, there's over 6 billion people on the planet, and there's all those prayers coming up to him. And we're positive that even though we pray, we're positive he's not going to answer us because there's too many other people to answer. And the people that he's answering right now are the important people. People like the president, you know. And then when he's, when he's finally finished with the president and the cabinet and all the foreign ministers and every, every dignitary on the planet, he works his way to the people who are like really holy, like the people who pray a lot, the people who never, they've not missed one day of prayer ever in their life. And he goes, well, you've been praying for 37 years. <sighs> okay, I've got it, you know. And it's the too busy God. He's busy with other people. And I would like to, I would like to declare this morning that the Lord is neither tired nor old, retired and he's not too busy either but then here's the one that really has has gotten in the church the other two were a little silly um yeah i'll have to explain this one again this one this is a far side uh, comic and it just says at the bottom it says god at his computer and there's a guy walking under a piano and then god's about ready to touch the smite button yeah And this perception of God is really, really prevalent in the church. And this is the perception that God is not just old, but that he's angry and that he's judgmental and he's mostly unhappy. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've ran into this. It's not just, it's not just that, he's, that he's old and angry, but that he's a judge. And the thing that he most likes to do while he's in heaven is to judge. He, he likes to catch you in your worst moment, and as soon as he finds you in your worst moment, it's like, it's like the video camera comes up, and he just pushes the judge button. You know, and he's probably, you know, and we, and we walk around with this feeling that, oh my goodness, goodness, on a good day, he's probably pushed the judge button five times on me. You know, you, you get into something you shouldn't, you say something you shouldn't, you hold an attitude that you shouldn't, and, and on the inside, even if no one can tell you begin to flinch. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, maybe you've done this, because this is me. Um, I'll be super honest. Maybe you get into some sin, and while you're into sin, you're actually enjoying it. Anybody ever been there? Like, you know it's wrong, but you are enjoying it. You're like, this is, so long as no one's, this is terrific. And while you're into it, it's really terrific. When you're finished with whatever that is, beating a person up, you know, whatever it is, Just, I'm just trying to take the pressure release valve off here for a second. But while, while you're finished, and you begin to walk away from, you know, beating someone to a bloody pulp, which, if you've been around here, you know I have done that. I've told those <laughs> stories. But when you're finished beating the guy to a bloody pulp, you begin to think, wow, that was, gosh, I shouldn't have done that. And then, for the next three or four days, you, you walk around, and you walk around bracing yourself because you know that God's already pushed the judge button. He's got you in his sights, and he, it's like, it's done, Right? Is it just me? Am I the only one who's ever had these emotions and thoughts? Okay. Not only only is is this kind of God, not only is he mostly a judge, but he likes it. Okay? It's not just that he's angry. It's not just that he's judgmental. It's not just that that he mostly judges. It's not just that most of his time in heaven is spent doing judgment. It's that he likes it. It's like the one thing that brings him pleasure is to take his wayward kids and beat them with a stick. 
<clears throat> not everyone in here is a parent. I, I'm a parent. I got three kids, and they are eight, they are six, and they are four. I think I got that right. That was good. They are eight, six, and four. And with three kids who are eight, six, and four, when you're their father, I, I have, I have, I have dished out several spankings. Okay. Can I tell you, as a father, I have never enjoyed spanking my children. Anybody, any fathers in here just really enjoyed it? Anybody want to admit that to everyone else? <laughs> yeah. But we have these perceptions of God that He is, and this is the one that has really taken root, and it is, and it is, that, he is that He is bitter, that He is angry, that He is judgmental, and not only that, but He likes it. He likes it. Can I tell you something? It's in the room right now. There are people who your entire life is, is it's like it's guided by just the, the guilt and the fear that comes from feeling like God has gotten me in his crosshairs. He is going to push the smite button, and when he pushes it, he's going to like it, you know? Some of you guys have been living 40 years with this concept and this videotape playing. And when that's your perception of God, who can you see? If that's what you're looking for, what will you find? You'll find that guy. I want to show you a movie clip. Um, we got that ready to go, Marcus? Yeah. I want to show you all something. Can we kill the light so we can make it even better? Okay, God. You want me to talk to you? Talk back. Tell me what's going on. What should I do? Give me a signal. I need your guidance, Lord. Please send me a sign. Oh, what's this Joker doing now? Okay. All right. I'll try it your way. All right. Lord. I need a miracle. I'm desperate. I need your help, Lord. Please reach into my life. Uh, what the? Oh, yeah. that's who you're looking for the problem is a lot of times that'll be the only thing you can find yet the, yet the, uh, here's the declaration that I, that I want to put out for us this morning in the scriptures the, the declaration in the scripture is that mercy triumphs over judgment and we're, we're going to unpack that over the next couple of weeks a little bit but here I want, to, I want to lay a couple things out for you do you know what it means when the scripture says that mercy triumphs over judgment it means that God has a preference 
And the, God's preference is he would much rather extend mercy than judgment. Just let that rest on you a little bit. Because some of us in the room really need to let that rest on us. The, the God that I, that I have known, however I've known him for the last 10, 20, 30, 3, 2 years, 2 months, 1 week, that God is much more interested in extending mercy than he is extending judgment. That's what mercy triumphs over judgment means. You know what else mercy triumphs over judgment means? It means that mercy is actually more effective than judgment. It means that mercy is actually way more effective than judgment. It means that if it means that if that if mercy and judgment were to be in a death match. I know this is a bit ironic. It means that if mercy and judgment were to tangle in a death match, mercy would win. That's what it means to, to say mercy triumphs over judgment. It means that mercy is better, it's more effective, it's God's preference. Not only that, but when we begin to be the kind of people who show mercy, when we begin to become truly the merciful, when we begin to, pe- to be the people who are able to extend mercy to other people, what it really means is, it means that we have the evidence in our life that we are actual sons and daughters. Because God's preference is merciful, is mercy. Who is God? God is not just a judge. He's mostly mercy. Mostly. I want to read you guys some scriptures. This is out of Exodus. This is one of my favorite pieces of all of the scriptures. This is when, when Moses has this dramatic encounter with, with the Spirit of God and he meets him face to face. And when, as the Lord passes by in front of Moses, this is what the Lord says about himself. So this isn't Moses' this isn't Moses's opinion of the Lord. This is, God's, this is God's declaration of himself. He says, so, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Is that good news? Okay, look at the last part. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children of their children for the sins of their fathers through the third and fourth generation. What's the point here? The point here is this, and this is where we actually have to deal with kingdom paradox. God is, God is, is merciful. He prefers mercy. And that doesn't preclude him from being an actual judge. It doesn't keep him from being a judge. But I want you to notice something this morning. This is a really important scripture for this reason. What comes first, the mercy or the judgment? Can I tell you why mercy comes first? Because it's what he would rather do. It's just what he would rather do. He, he's much more interested in being compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's who the Lord is. Here's the, here's the deal. The problem is, because of, of the way the church has existed for so long, we have mostly focused on the second part, that, that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. We've mostly focused on that. We've developed a culture of guilt manipulation, and it's guilt and manipulation based upon the fact that God is judgmental, that God is angry, and that he's unforgiving, and that he likes to, likes to catch people in their worst moment and burn them. We've created a culture around the second part there, and here's the problem. When you create a culture around the second part, if you don't understand that God is mostly merciful and all you really have is that God is a judge, you will end up with a distorted picture of who the Lord is and it will ruin, ruin large portions of your life. 
I mean, I'm talking, I'm not, I'm not joking. When I say ruin, I'm talking about ruin with a capital R. If you, have, if, you have, if you think you have a revelation that God is a judge and that he will punish the wicked, apart from the fact that God is slow to anger, compassionate, and that he is abounding in love and faithfulness and maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, if you don't have that on board, you really don't have a revelation that God is a judge at all. See, it takes one to even understand the second one. It's all about perception. And one of the things that the Lord wants to do is he wants to upset the apple cart that is released in his church that says that God is angry, that God is upset, that God is judgmental, and that God would rather burn you than, than show you mercy. See, a lot of us have part two, but we never got part one. If you didn't get part one, you still don't have part two. <clears throat> Hebrews 12 says this. Hebrews 12 says, that God's, God disciplines his sons because he loves them. See, actually, discipline in your life is evidence that you're a son. But if you don't understand that God is mostly merciful and that his heart toward you is love and affection, if all you have is the second part, you will misinterpret it and it can potentially ruin large areas of your life. This is a big deal. Here's another scripture. This is out of Jonah. <clears throat> you guys know the story of Jonah. Jonah has an encounter with the Lord. The Lord says, look, dude, go to, go to Nineveh. It's a wicked city. I'm about to destroy it. You need to go to it. Tell them to repent. And if they repent, it'll be great. Jonah's like, I don't want to go. He runs away. Fish, three days, belly of the whale, puked on the beach. You guys know that, right? Okay, finally, Jonah goes to Nineveh. And in chapter 3, you guys need to read this at some point. It's a ridiculous book. In chapter 3, Jonah goes, goes to Nineveh, and this is his message to Nineveh, okay? Forty days, and Nineveh is no more. That's the message, okay? And this is one of my favorite parts of the Scripture because it's just so bizarre. Jonah shows up. He doesn't want to go. He goes anyway, and the message that he has is, Forty days, and Nineveh is no more. Guess what happens in Nineveh? Everyone repents. The king puts out this edict. Everyone repents. No one eats or drinks for three days, not even the cattle, not even the animals. There was, there was, such a, such a, there was so much repentance that came into Nineveh that even the animals repented. And his message was, 40 days and Nineveh is no more. This is bizarre. See, here's the deal. Apparently, Jonah was like the most anointed preacher ever. You realize he did no signs and wonders. None. And can you imagine, what kind of anointing is on your life when you can show up to a rebellious, wicked, and incredible, Nineveh was known for its violence, an incredibly violent people, and all you say is, 40 days and Nineveh is no more, and they all repent. What kind of anointing is resting on your life? You do no signs and wonders. You just show up, 40 days and no more, and the king says, we're all going to repent. No one eats, no one drinks, not even the animals. That's what happened. And then the Lord says, I like that. I've changed my mind. I won't destroy them. And this is, this is the aftermath. This is chapter 4. After Jonah goes, after he delivers the message, and after the people repent, Jonah's talking to the Lord, and Jonah is angry. And this is what he says. He says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry, and he prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew, now look at this, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending, from sending calamity. What's the Lord like? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending, compa- from sending calamity. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what the Lord says to Jonah at the very end. Look at, look at verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 11. This is the Lord talking to Jonah. He says, But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. I like that note. And <laughs> should I not be concerned about that great city? What's the Lord like? He's slow to anger. He's rich in love. He's full of mercy and compassion. He relents from sending calamity. He would rather show mercy than show judgment. Look at this. God, God even cares about cattle, apparently. For all you dog and cat lovers in the room, this is, this is your verse. You need to write down Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. You need to, you need to write that one, you know. <clears throat> that part actually troubles me because Heather and I are not animal people. And the Russell House is, a, is the place where animals come to die. <laughs> yeah. That darn hamster you gave us, or, you know, Kendall gave us. Yeah, this has nothing to do with the message, but it's kind of funny. Heather and I are, we, we, go, we went away with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and a, a couple more friends for a few days to Jamaica last year. I came home and Kendall had been keeping our kids and we had hamsters now. <laughs> That's not good in the Russell house because the Russell house is where animals go to die. Not by hand. Not by my hand. It's just that, you know, after a few weeks of whatever, you know, that little dried up cracker of a hamster... <laughs> Heather put him down in the basement. We forgot to water him. We've asked for forgiveness. And that's okay because God is slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. He relents from sending calamity. Yeah, mercy triumphs over judgment. So we've seen it. We've seen it with Moses his interaction with the Lord, we've seen it here with Jonah, his interaction with the Lord, and then it's just, it's just incredibly present in, in Jesus' life. You guys remember what Jesus said? He says, I came to seek and save the lost. Yeah, you know, God looks, at, God looks at humanity when it's in its worst possible condition, and that's when God decides to send the best solution, you know? Why? It's because he would rather not judge. He would rather, he would rather show mercy. And I just love this passage out of Hebrews. It's the beginning of the book. And it's, it's actually about the Lord Jesus. And it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in, in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. Verse 3, this is where it's great. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. What's the point? The point is, if you can't find it in Jesus, you won't find it in the Father. And what we find in Jesus is is that He is the Father's intention on holding back judgment and extending mercy to people who do not deserve it. And what what we can reason and deduct from that is that our Father in heaven is slow to anger, rich in mercy, and He would rather show mercy and push the judgment button. 
That's actually good news. You can do this. That's good news. So here's what we've got to capture this morning. We've got to capture that, number one, that God is not, he is not tired. God has not retired. God is not too busy. God is not angry. I'm telling you guys that. God is not angry. Bill Johnson says this all the time. God, I'm here, and he says this to his church almost every time before he gets up to speak. He says, I'm happy to inform you that God is in a good mood. How does that rest on you, you know? God is not angry. He's actually in a good mood. God is kind, and he prefers mercy. A couple more things, and we'll be done. The reason that this is such a big deal, the reason that this is such a big deal is because in 2 Corinthians, I think chapter 5, it says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Any of y'all ever read that? We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. What that means is, is that we have, in, in God's, in God's plan, in his, in, his, in his design, His perfect design, His preference is to show mercy. He'd rather not show, He'd rather not punch the judgment button. His preference is to show mercy. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. What that means is, we've been given the, the, the ministry of showing mercy. And here's why it's such a big deal. We have got to become the mercy people because mercy opens doors and keeps doors open. Judgment closes them and closes them forever. And, and let me explain that just a little bit. When I when I am a when I am a when I'm a person who realizes that God's preference is mercy, when I become an ambassador for mercy toward people who may or may not deserve mercy, when I become an ambassador for mercy, what I'm actually doing is I'm opening the door to the kingdom of heaven, or I'm maintaining keeping that door open to them. The moment that I begin to judge them. The moment that I judge them, what I really do is I write them off and I say, you are whatever. You are a bad person forever. As soon as my heart posture is, you're a bad person forever, I close the door to the kingdom of heaven for someone and it will remain closed until someone else with mercy comes and open it. You see, mercy opens doors, judgment closes them, and they will remain closed until mercy comes back. The Father, much, he would much rather show mercy because mercy keeps the doors open. Um, everybody in here has got a family, right? And if you've got a large family, one of the things you'll find out really quick is that there are certain people in your family that you just love, you just always love them, you love being around them, they're just great. And then there's that one uncle who drives you nuts. And then eventually the one, the, the one uncle who drives you nuts, he like oversteps his bounds at some point, And <clears throat> he becomes offensive and he becomes offensive. You're like, okay, mercy, you know. And then next Thanksgiving, you know, offensive, crazy uncle that you wish weren't in your family's back, and he's, like, even more offensive than before. This goes on for a while, and eventually, you know, perhaps you have massive blowout with uncle that you really wish wasn't in your family, and something changes in your heart, and, and even though you may never say it, even though it may never be verbalized, the posture of your heart is, I wish you were dead. Anybody ever, ever, anybody ever had that thought? I've had that thought, okay? Here's what happens when you, begin to, when you begin to take that kind of heart posture f- towards someone. When you wish them dead, when, they, when you wish them that they were dead to you, they actually are, and you just, by judgment, closed the door because you're called to be a, 
conduit of mercy. You're called to be an ambassador of mercy. You're called to be, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. When those kinds of attitudes, when those kinds of heart postures begin to cut loose and get, get going in your life, you're actually taking, you're taking the door that isn't yours to hold anyway. Judgment belongs to the Lord. You're taking a door that isn't yours to close anyway, and you're closing it. Mercy keeps them open. Um, some of you guys remember, um, some of you guys maybe have like read the story about Jim Elliott. You guys, you guys, anybody heard of him? Okay, in the 50s, Jim Elliott was a, was a, a missionary, and he was, he was in South America, and he made some contact with some, with some native tribes, and he was going in for another tribe that was known to be violent, and he had three guys with him, so there's four. It's like a pilot and three dudes, some, some friends. And they'd gone in, they'd actually made contact, and they met this one little guy from the tribe who's been you know, noted to be so violent. And they actually take him up in his airplane, and they fly him around. But that guy goes back to his tribe, and he tells lies about the four guys that he's been with. Okay? The next time that Jim and his three friends come back, they kill him. Ten warriors come out, and they kill him. All right? That's not the end of the story. Now imagine... Imagine that it was your mother or your father or your brother or your sister who was brutally murdered by warlike South American tribes people. It's a bad day, right? What would you do? Well, here's what the family and the friends of Jim Elliott and the three guys who were brutally murdered did. About three years later, guess where they went? They went back to that tribe. Guess what happened? That tribe met the Lord. Many, many, many years later, um, the, the pilot who was with Jim Elliott, um, his son was really young at that point. I think he was about three years old. His son goes back to that tribe and he, and he shares communion with them. Now, can you imagine sharing communion with the tribe who killed your father? What's the point? The point is, is if, that, if, that if because of violence done toward loved ones, if the friends and family of Jim Elliott and the three men who were with him, if they had, if they had decided... That is a tribe who is warlike. That is a tribe who is violent. That is a tribe who is fill in the blank. That tribe is X. If in doing so they had written them off, maybe not even, maybe not even from a place of bitterness, but just said, that's just too dangerous. That's, the price is too much. What would have happened in that moment? Those people get written off, and because of judgment, the door to the kingdom of heaven gets closed to those people for how long? Until someone with mercy comes in to open it. Mercy's a big deal. It keeps doors open. Mercy keeps doors open. And the doors that we want to keep open around here at the vineyard are the doors to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we want to keep the doors to the kingdom of heaven open around here. This is what it means to have the doors to the kingdom of heaven open. The doors of... Hi, Travis. Dang, it's so good to have you back. Sorry, I'm a little ADD. Um, but, but having the doors to the kingdom of heaven open, it means having the good kind of life open and available to people. What does it mean for the kingdom of heaven to be around? It means that the good kind of life is available. And mercy is a door that people are able to walk through and get into the good kind of life. See, the kingdom of heaven isn't rules and regulations. It's the good kind of life. Not only that, but it's a big deal because of, of, of a couple things that Jesus said. 
one of the things that Jesus said is that, is that, the, is that the path is what? Narrow, okay? Nobody ever talks about this in church either. But the path is narrow. So if the path is already narrow, if the path into the kingdom is already narrow, and, and for the most part, a lot of people aren't going to find it, we need to, we need to be doubly devoted to being people who are, who are in touch and in contact with mercy and be people who are extending mercy because the path is narrow. We can't be people who are shutting doors on a narrow path. Amen? We can't be people who are shutting doors on a narrow path because of judgment. And what I want to say is this. All of this flows from every bit of what I've just talked about today. It comes out of what is our view of God. It comes out of what is our view of God. Either God is angry, judgmental, hateful, and he gets a kick out of seeing you do poorly, or he is kind, and he is compassionate, and he is generous, and he is loving, and he would rather show mercy than judgment. One of the things the Lord wants to do this, this fall, and I've just really gotten a, a word, just a sense of this over the, over the past about a month and a half, is that, is that this fall, from now to Christmas, one of the things that the Lord wants to do is he wants to, he wants to show us his mercy and, he, he, and he's going to prove to a lot of people that he's way more merciful than they thought that, that he was. The other thing that he wants to do is he wants to, he wants to reignite he wants to reignite within everybody in here the reality that I've been called to, I've been called to the ministry of reconciliation and most usually that means being called to the ministry of mercy. It, mean, it, it means opening doors for people. See, here's the deal. Right now in America, the church is completely tone deaf on the gay and lesbian issue. And you know why? Because we have been, we have been, we have been harborers of judgment. Because of judgment, we're closing doors to people who would like to get in. And if they got in, you know what would actually happen? They would change. But we close doors before we even give them an opportunity to change. See, one of the things that's happened in the church, especially among the gay and lesbian community, is we, we, have, we, have, we have propagated this idea that God is, is judgment and that he is angry and that he wants to whack somebody around way more than we have that God is merciful and kind. And because he's merciful and kind, if you turn to him even a little bit, he meets you with power for change. And so we've shut doors and demanded people to come through shut doors. I, I'm, I, this, is, this is actually what happens. We, we shut doors, we bar them closed, and then we demand that they run through them. And I don't know about you, but I've actually done that before um, on several occasions because I'm kind of clumsy and silly. I have, I have actually run into a closed door. It almost knocked me silly. And then we wonder why people don't want to be connected to the church, you know? It's like, dude, you want me to run through closed doors. I, here's what I want. I want to open doors. That's what I want to do. I want to open doors. Amen? Amen. If you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up?
Anybody on the ministry team have a word? There you go, Jesse. Everyone say hello to Jesse. Hi, guys. Uh, Chloe, I really feel that the Lord, he really likes where you're at right now. And he really likes that you're so open to his goodness. Mm. And he's just going to keep pouring that goodness over on you. Um, and also, if anyone Hang on has, just one second. Yeah, sure. yeah, Chloe, I just feel like that what, what, what she means by goodness right now is that you're in a time of favor and you're in a time where um, you're in a time where doors are opening to you without you trying. It's just doors are opening. And behind the door, there, there seems to be like provision over your life right now, too. And it's, and it's going to be one of the hallmarks of your life is that uh, what a lot of people have to strive and beat their heads against um, in terms of advancing in career and advancing in um, position, it's not going to happen because you're just favored. It's like, it's like when Joseph was favored by his father. He had better coats. Yeah, and, and it's going to be one of the signs on your life is that you're going to have stuff. It's just going to be, there's going to be stuff. And it's, and it's going, to be, going to be because the Lord, just, he, he just has favor on your life. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and also, if I would like to pray for anyone that has um, really sharp pains over your left eye. Like, it's, it's like a headache, but it's really, really sharp. Um, does anyone have that? You've been struggling with that recently? Yeah, I'd like to pray for you, Andrea. Hey, everyone. Um, I feel like the Lord wants to redress hearts um, this morning. I heard him say that uh, he wants to take garments that don't fit on the heart off. And he wants to put garments that do fit on the heart on. Thanks, Nate. Adrian? Marcus? There you go. Actually, just a little bit of a follow-up. Heavy on the heart this morning was just restoration. Restoration and redemption uh, of the heart. And I think that just follows up with Luke. So I just reiterate that, Luke. Mm. Thanks. All right, guys, why don't we stand up? I'll pray and we'll be done. Father, we love you this morning.